Hello and welcome to this podcast from Conway Hall, London, where ethics matter. To find out more about our programme of talks and concerts, visit conwayhall.org.uk or find us on social media. When the Prime Minister illegally prorogued Parliament, Barrister Sam Fowles was part of the team that took him to court and won. At a crucial juncture for British governance, Fowles urges us not to take our freedoms for granted. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Sam Fowles and I am a dangerous criminal. According to certain sections of the press, I am guilty of treason. Not just that, but conspiring with a foreign power to stymie the will of the people. This was literally the front page of the Express on the 29th of September 2019 that Downing Street had launched a, quote, major investigation into collusion between advocates of the Ben Act and the French government. Now, I was on the legal team that enforced that act and took the prime minister to court and uh, forced him to comply with it. And of course, I wasn't investigated. No one was. It was entirely made up. But it dominated a full news cycle and kind of scared me for a minute. The case was called Vince and the Advocate General. And what this turned around was an Act of Parliament passed in, uh, in 2019, which said if Boris Johnson could not get his Brexit negotiations sorted and to a point that everyone agreed on by at the Brexit deadline of October 31st, then he would need to ask for an extension. Now, you learn one thing on the first day of law school about constitutional law, which is what, that when Parliament says something, you're supposed to do it. Johnson and his executive, in 31 public statements, said they would not comply with the Benn Act. So we went to court in Scotland, and the moment the government's advocates stood up, they said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, it's all a bigger misunderstanding. We're absolutely going to comply with the law. Well, of course we are. At the very same time back in London, Michael Gove was on television saying, we're absolutely not going to comply with the law. And we said to the, uh, the Scots court, this is just absurd. And the Scots court said, well, we agree. Um, but we can't enforce an injunction against someone who said they're going to comply with the law in court. And so they did something extraordinary, which was said, we are going to remain in session until such a time as this letter requesting an extension is sent. And if it is not sent, within, I think it was three days of the Brexit deadline, we will send it ourselves. And that's pretty much my job. I'm a public lawyer. I represent ordinary people, ensuring that the government obeys the law. And this has given me a fairly interesting window into our constitution where it's democratic and works, but more often, 
where it's not and doesn't. And that's what pushed me to write this book, to try and share that perspective, because it occurred to me that it shouldn't actually be me in a courtroom that is caretaking our democratic constitution and making it work. It shouldn't be about lawyers and judges and politicians. Our constitution should be about us as citizens. And I didn't know anything about the constitution until I went to law school. And I figured that maybe some other people were in the same boat. And so what I'm trying to do with this book is to sort of open the window that I've had uh, on the Constitution to, to as many people as possible. Um, but also, unlike the window that, uh, that I had, where it was we're sort of taught, you know, this is how it works, to kind of shine a light on the fact that often it doesn't. And I think one of the main reasons it doesn't is the UK is not actually designed to be a democracy. Um, that was a fairly recent innovation. Really only in the last hundred, it's only in the last hundred years that the majority of people have actually been allowed to vote. Our constitution was designed to be an oligarchy, to be controlled by a very small electorate of very rich, very white men who were all kind of married to each other's sisters and were basically all mates with each other. Um, it was only through uh, citizens and ordinary people demanding a say from workers like the Chartists to women like the suffragettes to um, Catholics, which <laughs> took a huge amount of time for Catholics to be allowed to vote, um, that we actually got to this point where you could describe democracy as the lodestar of the Constitution. I don't think democracy is the basis of our constitution yet. I don't think we ever got to that point. But I think it was the direction of travel. You know, we're still in a situation where our government has only ever commanded the support of 42% of the population, of not the population, of the people that showed up to vote. It's not since 1935 has a government actually had the support of the majority of people in this country. And our upper house is appointed by the executive. So I don't think we ever got to the point of being a true democracy, but I think we were maybe heading in that direction. But in the last 10 years or so, my view is that that direction of travel has been reversed. And in my book, I argue it's reversed along four themes. The first is the rollback of accountability. The second is increased centralization. The third is disenfranchisement. And the fourth is bullshit. And I thought this evening I'd focus on that fourth theme, because this is the Society of Ethics. And bullshit is the denial, not of constitutional rules, but of constitutional morality. And for as long as there has been England, not the United Kingdom, England, well before any such thing as 
democracy well before there was any such thing as not worrying about the Vikings. The imperative to tell the truth has been the fundamental morality of our Constitution. And I thought that was particularly relevant today, in the, or this, this week, in the light of the, uh, the Conservative leadership contest kicking off, and that contest. Um, and so I thought I'd call this talk Constitutional Morality from Truth to Bullshit. And I want to try to cover three points. And the first is to talk a little bit about what I mean by constitutional morality. And then to explain what I'm talking about when I, when I describe the rise of bullshit. And then finally, to focus on a particular type of bullshit that we've been seeing a lot of in the past you know, 52 hours, um, and particularly pernicious form of bullshit, which is the invented enemy. So, constitutional morality. Anyone, I was over lockdown glued to the Netflix series The Last Kingdom, which is about Anglo-Saxons. It was very exciting. Um, and a character in it was a chap called Athelstan. And we all know about Alfred the Great. But actually, the person that united the warring Saxon kingdoms and created the thing that came to be called England was his great-grandson, Athelstan. And one of the first things that Athelstan did, and sort of the, the thing that knit us together, or knit England together, um, was he created a national set of laws, the first national law. And this was called the Dooms of Athelstan. And it covered a lot of fairly gruesome things. Um, covered a lot of things about uh, a real property, buying and selling land, which actually I do a bit of property law and it's not really evolved that much since then. Um, but it also covered the imperative to tell the truth. And I just want to quote you from it. If it be found that there any of these have given wrongful witnesses, that his witness never again be believed. And he who shall swear a false false oath, and it be made clear against him that he never after be oath-worthy, nor let him lie within hallowed burial place, though he die. So Athelstan wasn't just going to say, you know, you don't tell the truth and we won't believe you in future. He was going to punish you in the afterlife as well. That was how seriously telling the truth was taken. And that continued through the age of divine right monarchy, through the Enlightenment. But it is particularly important in the age of democracy because democracy is fundamentally about working out what we agree on, what we agree on as a society. And James Madison, when he was developing his thought around the US Constitution, put it like this. Opinion is not a product of thought achieved by only a few and promulgated to the many so as to ensure stability. 
It is the public fund of experience articulated in speech from which agreements are sought amongst the people. Opinions gather significance as they become public through persons confirming and enlarging their own views through discussion. That's what democracy was in Athens when people got together in the forum to work things out. But it didn't go away when we stopped all being able to get together in one place to discuss ideas. They discussed it through writing in the colonies that became the United States. And today, we have what's known as the public space. And that public space is here with us all together. It's in Parliament, but it's also online. It's in books. It's in newspapers. And in this public space, we have to try and work out what we as a society think. But we can only do that if our public space is linked to reality. And that's why truth is so important. If we don't all at least attempt to have some sort of connection with what's real, public discourse is essentially meaningless. Let me give you an example of that in practice. This is a tweet I came across yesterday from a political commentator called Emily Hewitson. And you may not have, have come across her, but she's been, um, I hadn't come across her until I read this tweet, but she's been on Question Time, Newsnight. This tweet alone got 169 retweets, 1,519 likes. She's got hundreds of thousands of followers. And she says, I'm loving the diversity in the conservative leadership race. Men and women from all different backgrounds. And how exactly did we get here? Not by patronizing quotas, but by the good old conservative philosophy that if you are talented and work hard, anyone can succeed. Except here's the thing. Patronizing quotas was exactly how the Conservative Party got there. David Cameron instituted what was called the A-list, where um, women and people from uh, backgrounds that are not usually represented in politics were prioritized for seats. At one point, David Cameron even endorsed women-only shortlists. So the Conservative Party is, is impressively diverse, I think this leadership uh, election is in, in some ways. But it's there because of a quota system. Now, I think affirmative action is a, a subject of, that's controversial. It's not something I necessarily uh, think 100% works. And I think you can have good points can be made on both sides of that argument. But for that argument to be meaningful, we at least have to connect with reality and at least have to connect that the A-list led to diversity because all the people standing in the conservative leadership election were appointed through the A-list. So, what do I mean when I talk about bullshit? This is a fun word to say in public, um, but it's also a concept that was developed at Princeton by a chap called Harry, Harry Frankfurter. And he describes bullshit as a discourse which aims to convince without regard for the truth. And I think you can distinguish between a bullshitter and a liar. And I distinguish it as a, from a sort of legal perspective. Cross-examining a liar is easy. Ultimately, a liar will break. You'll get them. 
Cross-examining a bullshitter is impossible because they just don't care about what they just... It's, the, the truth is simply not important. It's not something that needs to enter the equation. And let me give you a little example, some grade-A bullshit. This is a quote from uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg on the Daily Politics in 2011. If you're in a negotiation for a free trade agreement, you can maintain your existing standards for 10 years under the WTO rules. So we have 10 years from the point at which we leave the European Union to negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU, which would mean we can carry on with our zero tariffs. Well, you can't. I'm a lawyer. I know that. Because I've read the WTO agreement <laughs> for my sins. This was said on a national politics show. It was 100% untrue. Rees-Mogg knew that it had no bearing on truth because a couple of years later, when Parliament had a few hours to ratify the Brexit trade agreement, he was on the same show telling everyone that if Parliament didn't vote in favour of it, then uh, we'd have a no-deal Brexit. Completely the opposite to what he said before. What was Rees-Mogg's comeuppance, punishment for saying that on national TV? He was put in the cabinet. Historically, the courts have been something of a bulwark against bullshit. And that brings me to the prorogation case. This will hopefully be somewhat familiar to many of you. In early 2019, a number of think tanks, um, member of the Europe, members of the European Research Group, started discussing the possibility of proroguing Parliament if Parliament would not agree to a Brexit deal to effectively force a no-deal Brexit. This was a topic of, of some discussion for months. I wrote a couple of articles about it. Everyone wrote a couple of articles about it. And then we got to August of 2019, and it was announced that, yes, Parliament would be prorogued, coincidentally, over the period of time where the government would be engaging in the final negotiations, what was then thought to be the final negotiations, uh, for its Brexit agreement. But here's the thing. The Prime Minister told us about why he had prorogued Parliament. He gave us his reasons. And he said in a letter, the current session has lasted more than 340 days and needs to be brought to a close. In almost 400 years, only the 2010 to 12 sessions comes close at 250 days. So not because he needed to get the, uh, the Brexit agreement through, but because Parliament had just been sitting for ages. That was the reason. So we tested this story in court, in the inner house of the Court of Session in Edinburgh. And we pointed out that if that was really the purpose of the prorogation, you could achieve it with a two or three day prorogation, as is traditional. And we suggested that perhaps the court might like to take, uh, take note of what Prime Minister and the Cabinet had been saying which should be the reason for the prorogation for you know, four months before they did it. 
and the court agreed. Lord Carloway, in judicial language, essentially said, pull the other one, and concluded that the purpose of the prorogation was not just because Parliament had been hanging around for quite a long time, but to frustrate Parliament's scrutiny of the Brexit negotiations. But the thing is, not every piece of bullshit is going to be tested under the eagle eye of an unimpressed Scots judge. And no judge is unimpressed like a Scots judge. Indeed, the courts have actually changed direction. And where they were one, may once have been considered a bulwark against bullshit, in a case uh, called Begum versus the UK, the Supreme Court recently said the courts should accept the government's explanations at face value. Bullshit is so problematic because it is, in essence, undemocratic. Anyone can take part in a debate based on truth. Anyone can work out and tell the truth. But when your goal is not to debate, is not to grapple with reality, when it is simply to, to convince, well then, you can dominate the debate by force of platform, by being able to control newspapers, being able to reach more people. And bullshit, therefore, creates the situation where power is truth. And this is not a massively new phenomenon. I first started thinking about this way back in 2014, uh, when Ipsos Mori came up with a survey, and they do this every, um, every few years, where they poll what the British public thinks about the factual background to, to major issues. And this, subject, this survey caught my eye at the time, because uh, it had quite a snappy headline, which was, British public wrong about nearly everything. And kudos to whoever wrote that. Um, but it wasn't far from the truth. In, on every major public policy issue at the time, the British, uh, our collective view of the factual background was miles away from where it actually was. I think there was uh, some uh, statistic about we thought like 30% of teenagers were pregnant at uh, any one time, or um, so, something absolutely astonishing. Um, but that's the, that's the majority of us. We're all voting. We're all debating. In 2014, we're all on Twitter. How could we possibly engage with these issues in a meaningful way when we actually had no idea what was going on? Which brings me to get a little bit more specific and talk about invented enemies. And for me, this is the most pernicious form of bullshit because it involves creating a fake problem to solve, but moreover, creating, picking someone, usually a marge or exclusively a marginalized group, the one exception, who is responsible for that problem. And this is 
This goes beyond other forms of bullshit for me because it's not just you're convincing us of something that's not real. You're convincing us of something that's not real and then hurting someone as a result. This is not a particularly new phenomenon at all. In fact, it's very old, and I'm thinking it's a warm night. I thought I'd do a little bit of audience interaction. So I thought I'd give you some quotes about invented enemies. And you can see, let's see if anyone can tell me who they are talking about. Here's the first one. They hate our order, our civilization, our enterprising industry, our religion. This wild, reckless, indolent, uncertain, and superstitious race has no sympathy with the English character. Well done. That's fantastic. I was really hoping you get it wrong. <laughs> that was Benjamin Disraeli talking about the Irish. You're not allowed to answer anymore. <laughs> well, Benjamin Disraeli was the one nation as well, uh, conservatism. That was the, uh, uh, that was the, the aspect, side of the, the party that at, at the time believed in, you know, exclusive, inclusivity. Here's a, okay, here's another one. This enemy was accused of undercutting the wages of indigenous labor, stealing jobs, and straining the already overburdened housing stock. Close. This was Jewish people. In 1910. One last one. Uh, I don't have a good quote, so I'm just going to give a summary. This group was accused of colluding with a foreign power to undermine the will of the people. Recently judges, in this, communists. I'm talking about the Zinoviev letter in 1920. But you're right. That was also said about judges. The quote about, uh, that was about the Jewish people could have been said about immigrants. I'm pretty sure was said word for word about immigrants today. The quote about the Irish could have been from one of Oliver Dowden's speeches talking about liberals. So it's not new, but it always leads to the victimization of the designated enemy. And Boris Johnson, our late prime minister, was a master of inventing enemies, which brings us back to the prorogation case. And this was the one non-marginalized group, I think, that was made an internal enemy. And perhaps that was why it was less successful. I got out of the Supreme Court after winning that case. And I've never felt like it. Well, I felt like it maybe once since then, which was when we got the decision in the post office case and got the convictions of the, uh, the post office staff quashed. Um, but this was, this was before that. This was the first time I'd felt it. Um, and we just, 
stood in the doorway of the Supreme Court while, you know, Joe Mung and Gina and um, uh, various sort of politicians who decided they were part of it at the time, um, you know, went and chatted to the press and it was all very exciting. And eventually we kind of thought, it's getting a bit awkward now. <laughs> we're just standing here. Um, so because we're lawyers, um, someone immediately suggested we go for a drink, um, which we did. And we got in a taxi and we thought we'll get away, you know, a little bit away. So we um, yeah, uh, grabbed, a, grabbed a taxi and uh, sort of sitting in the back and it came on LBC and they were, LBC was chatting about it and uh, we were sort of catching each other's eye going, yeah, yeah. Um, and the taxi driver stopped at a red light and turned around to us and looked me in the eye and said, the British people will never forgive you for what you've done. That was minutes afterwards. All we had done was get the representatives of the British people back in Parliament, give the people they'd voted for a say on the policies that affected them. But that's not what people saw. That's not what, how people understood the case. The government immediately, and the, the government's allies immediately, framed this thing as an illegitimate decision. And Jeffrey Cox, the Attorney General, who is an outstanding lawyer, claimed that the Supreme Court had invented law and that no prorogation in the last 50 to 100 years would have withstood that judgment. Uh, an unnamed Downing Street source, I would not like to speculate on the identity of, said the judges had been uh, politically biased. Jacob Rees-Mogg called it a constitutional coup. Actually, I never thought we were going to lose that case. It's one of the easiest cases I've ever argued. It's parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary accountability are constitutional principles that go back centuries. And believe me when I tell you they go back centuries, because I was the junior barrister on that case, so I had to do the research going all the way back. All the court said was, does this action impinge on parliamentary sovereignty and accountability? Obviously it did. The government didn't even dispute that. Then the court asked, well, is there a justification for that infringement. And the court had to conclude no, because the government's lawyers offered no justification at the level of the Supreme Court. So it wasn't that controversial. It wasn't even that complicated. Ultimately, that's all it comes down to. But Arguably, the majority of people believe this was some sort of attack on democracy, when actually it was the opposite. Now, Boris Johnson has been you know, often tarred with this bullshit brush, and I think there's a tendency to kind of view him as uniquely mendacious. And I think that's wrong, and so I want to make my last point by looking at Johnson's successors. And I could go back and uh, you know, talk about their various, uh, you know, their various 
careers. Um, but actually, I don't need to, because we've got a brilliant case study of the difference between politics as normal and bullshit politics in the current prime ministerial leadership election. And essentially, all of the candidates are basing their offerings around two pillars. One is tax cuts, and the other is the culture war. Now, tax cuts, you may say, what is being offered is unrealistic. You may point out that many of the candidates that are proposing these tax cuts actually supported the tax rises last year. But you could also say they're a good idea and they might stimulate the economy and a large amount of, you know, reputable, at least, economists have, have made that argument. You can, reasonable people can disagree on those points. But the same cannot be said for the culture war. And I actually hate the term culture war because I feel like it trivializes and obscures what's really going on. A better descriptor is the victimization of marginalized people by designating them as a threat. In other words, invented enemies. And I just want to pick out three strands of invented enemy. And the first is people who rely on human rights and challenge the government in the European court. Because, of course, this discourse is always framed as foreign judges, and it's the judges we don't like. But actually, in practice, the real problem is the people that bring the cases to the judges. Now we've been told it's a foreign court, that it interferes in our politics, and that it's undemocratic. And actually, the European Convention is largely drafted by British lawyers. If you don't believe me, look at what the government's own independent review of the Human Rights Act says about it. The rights apply because they are, and we have the rights because we are human, not because we're British or French or Swedish, whatever. They flow from our very humanity and they were a deliberate recognition that fundamental humanity transcends state lines. That was the point of the Nuremberg trials. And the same people that argued the Nuremberg trials were the ones that wrote the um, European Convention. All parties, including the UK, contribute judges. So there are UK judges on that court too. And far from being a problem for democracy, those rights are not are only a problem for majoritarianism. They're a problem for mob rule. But they're not a problem for democracy. As Lady Hale put it, the majority men may not care about human dignity, but democracy does. And actually what I argue in this book is the recognition of our fundamental dignity is the essence of democracy. I didn't come up with that. That was Aristotle. Now, this isn't an outright lie. You know, it's simply a dishonest... It's almost... It's not like uh, the 
the people, the candidates promoting this, uh, this invented enemy are, are saying, you know, the, the court decided one thing when it didn't. Rather, they're just complete, uh, creating a completely new playing field this in, entirely in parallel with the reality of the court. But what they're going to do is win plaudits by stripping vulnerable people of their rights and their dignity. Because that's what invention enemies always comes down to. And then we have another strand, the threat to children from LGBT plus people, the concept of LGBT plus. It's, it's, to be honest, I've read several of these statements and it wasn't completely clear to me. But essentially, it seems like there's a real, they think there's a real threat to our kids because if they learn about gay people. Um, again, it's not particularly new. I mean, well, some will remember, some will have just watched It's a Sin on TV. And remember the 1980s and the uh, framing of gay men as paedophiles. But we are told the possibility of kids being taught that some people are gay and some people are bi, some people are trans, is somehow corrupting them. Again, this is just cloud cuckoo land. Some people are gay. It's not inventing a new thing. It's just telling them what the world is like. Again, clearly, again, rooting a crackdown on LGBTQ plus people. And of course, we have the favorite internal enemy, immigration. Ever present in some form. The latest iteration is migrants coming over in boats. Now, everyone who has ever touched immigration law knows why migrants come over in boats. It's because there's no safe and legal routes. There's no safe and legal routes because for the past 30 years, migrants have been a convenient, internal, invented enemy. You could stop the boats tomorrow. An easy jet flight still costs 30 quid. Instead, our executive glories in this sort of performative cruelty, up to the, including deporting people to concentration camps in Rwanda. And then, of course, there's the question of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we are told repeatedly and unquestioningly is not working. And yet, the Northern Ireland economy is outstripping every part of the UK except for London. The majority of Northern Irish people support the protocol and want it to continue. Now, my views on democracy are old-fashioned, but with a few exceptions when you're getting into fundamental rights, when the majority of people want something to happen, that's a sort of democratic mandate, right? Suggesting it should happen. And so we are deciding the identity of our next prime minister based in large part on a sort of parallel universe fantasy debate about all of these invented enemies and who can screw over the marginalized the most. What to do? 
Well, after writing the first draft of this, I thought, God, I've just spent four months sort of moaning about things. And uh, I should maybe try and do something about it. Um, so I thought, what, bit, what can I do? What can I do to sort of help? And I thought I can try and tackle constitutional bullshit. And what sort of spurred me on was the debate about the Brexit trade agreement, where we were told if Parliament votes against this, well, then the Brexit trade agreement can't happen. Actually, Parliament doesn't ratify international treaties. The bill that Parliament voted on was not the ratification of the trade agreement. It was a vast and unaccountable suite of powers to implement the agreement in domestic law. But MPs had a debate and voted on something completely different to what they thought they were voting on. And so I founded, with, with a few other people, the Institute for Constitutional Research. And the idea was to bring the expertise of the bar, of academia, to policymakers and eventually to the public. Um, and we've been developing various different constitutional ideas, and one of them is a legislative uh, approach to bullshit, and which would codify making a false statement willfully or negligently as a form of misconduct in public office. But we've also helped create the APPG on democracy and the constitution. And that had arguably a bigger impact on combating bullshit because it, the first thing it did was the Clapham Common Inquiry. And our, uh, after the policing of the Sarah Everard vigil, we had a report from Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary which said police did wonderfully and they did everything right. And we started taking evidence. And we did one crucial thing that was different from HMRC, HMIC, which was we talked to people who were actually at the vigil. Her Majesty's Inspectorate did not include in its report witness testimony from any attendee, only from the police. And once we started talking to people who were actually there and who were on the end of the policing, well, we revealed a very different picture and were able to get coverage and, and every, every national newspaper eventually covered it. Um, recently, we published an, uh, conducted a new inquiry on judicial independence and highlighted the, uh, the ways in which the government's sort of attacks on judges uh, creates the impression that judicial independence is being compromised. And so we were able to set right again and we're get, getting press coverage, because this is important, right? You've got, we've got to be able to talk to people to make it, to, to reach as many people as possible. Um, but ultimately, the ICI is not going to say it to solve the problem. Politicians embrace bullshit because we, as an electorate, let them and rewarded them for doing it. So it comes down to us as citizens. We've got a responsibility, firstly, not to accept the bullshit, to challenge it in every way, but also 
to campaign for better education around critical thinking, giving the next generation the skills that will allow them to see through what they're told. And equally importantly, we as citizens need to support organizations like this one that gives a, uh, the opportunity to challenge these ideas and have a proper, real debate based in reality. And I want to finish with this thought. I have, of course, essentially blamed everyone for uh, the problem that, uh, that uh, I highlighted of bullshit. We as citizens are ultimately responsible, but we as citizens are also the solution if we choose to be so. Thanks very much.